Well, it's a joy to be able to continue my Sunday school series in the life of Christ for the sermon today. This is part 315 of my Life of Christ series. You don't have to have heard all the other ones to benefit from today's message, so don't worry about that. But in God's providence, we have a good uh, section here from the Gospel of Matthew to, to learn from as we come to his word. The passage today is Matthew 20, verses 1 to 16. Many years ago, after college in the Chicago area, I moved to California to work and go to seminary. And one of my early experiences in Los Angeles was seeing large numbers of men gathered in the parking lot of Home Depot. I wasn't quite sure what that was at first. But every so often, a pickup truck would pull up to a group, and the driver would exchange a few words with them. I'm sure there were words about uh, immigration status and so forth. And then some of the men would get in the back of the truck, and they'd ride off. Now, they didn't have Home Depot and uh, pickup trucks in Jesus' day, but they did have day laborers then, too. They had people they needed to work for the day. While many people in Jesus' day didn't have special skills or steady work, they tried to get hired day by day because they tended to live day by day. They didn't have 401ks, they didn't have Social Security, they didn't have even much extra money for savings. And so for these people, if you want to eat tomorrow... You need to find work today. And so you would go to the marketplace in the situation and you tried to look competent in the hope that someone would pick you up and give you a job for that day. And that's the background of our text today, the parable of the workers in the vineyard, or better, I think, the parable of the sovereign landowner. Let's look at Matthew chapter 20, and we'll even go back one verse into chapter 19, verse 30. Matthew 19, starting in verse 30. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And when he had agreed with the laborers for denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing around, and he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men only or have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to them, one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? So the last shall be first, and the first last. Before we look at this particular parable in detail, let me remind you about what a parable is. Jesus' parables generally consist of a short story 
taken from ordinary life to illustrate a spiritual truth. And so you'll see things like in verse 1 here, the kingdom of heaven is like, and there are many parables like that, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And often the parables have a surprising element, like in another parable that there's a slave who is forgiven a debt of 10,000 talents, and then he turns around to demand repayment of a relatively small debt of 100 denarii. Or in this case, our parable today, the landowner who is very generous to men who have only worked for one hour. And when we're looking and studying parables, trying to interpret them, it's best to focus on a single point. We don't want to spiritualize every detail. Uh, just as one example, you might remember way back when we looked at the Good Samaritan, Augustine would, and many others would spiritualize or allegorize every element of a, of a story. So in the Good Samaritan story, Augustine said, the man who's beaten up represents Adam. The robbers represent the devil and his angels. Leaving the man half dead represents humanity as half dead spiritually due to sin, but half alive due to knowledge of God. The priest represents the law. The Levite represents the prophets. The Good Samaritan represents Christ. The beast represents the body of Christ. The end represents the church. The two denarii represent the two commandments of love. The innkeeper represents the apostle Paul. And the return of the Good Samaritan represents the resurrection of Christ. And there's more details I, I skipped. And so it can be tempting to want to find meaning in every little detail, but let's not do that. Now, the parable of the Good Samaritan is a straightforward story intended to show what loving your neighbor as yourself means. In a similar way, we don't need to assign meaning to every detail of our story today. Now, some interpreters will say that the workers hired at each stage, at the first hour, the third hour, and so forth, represent stages in, say, church history. But let's not get too caught up in those details to, to imagine too much here. It's best to keep the interpretation simple, especially in cases like this where Jesus doesn't explain the parable in detail. Now, I've already given some background of, of day laborers in Jesus' day, but let's dig in some more to understand the context of, of this. This would have been familiar to the people in Jesus' day, but not to us uh, all these centuries later. And so we have here a landowner, verse 1 of the vineyard, and these men, these landowners, don't always have a lot of employees on their payroll. Uh, they would hire as necessary. And so whether it was planting a vineyard or pruning the vines during the growing season or harvesting the grapes, it was hard work but not steady work. And particularly, though, at harvest time, you would need to get your crops or grapes in before they spoiled in the field or on the vine. I mentioned pears earlier that we grew in our backyard. We have this problem every year. We have... Uh, two pear trees that that bear hundreds of pears, and we can't eat them all. We can't pick them all. They drop to the ground. We could probably use a few day laborers to come and just get all the pears off, and but we couldn't even use them all if we had if we were able to get them all. How much more those whose livelihood depends on harvesting a good crop? And so when you have to harvest, you need your workers right now. Get them in there. Get things harvested and, and off to the marketplaces. So you need these workers when you need them. And so that's why you go to the marketplace to, to hire them. Now, a denarius here is a, a single coin. It's a typical daily wage for a day laborer or even a soldier. And this was not a lot of money. The One commentator said the purchasing power of denarius was maybe 10 to 12 small loaves of bread. And these aren't the loaves like we have. They're more more like flat bread than, than the kind that we normally eat today. And so people who get a denarius a day are not getting rich, but they can get enough to live on for the next day. 
But the fact that this was not a lot of money was meant that prompt payment for these workers was important. In fact, so important, it was part of the Mosaic Law. If you look back at Leviticus 19.13, it says, You shall not oppress your neighbor nor rob him. The wages of a hired man are not to remain with you all night until morning. Uh, in Deuteronomy 24.15 says about the same thing, You shall give him his wages on his day before the sun sets, for he is poor and sets his heart on it, so that he will not cry against you to the Lord, and it becomes sin in you. So most of us probably aren't paid at the end of every day. We get paid maybe uh, at the end of a week or a couple times a month, whenever it is. Uh, we are not so desperate, typically, as these men who need their money at sundown. They, don't, they can't wait till the next morning. They need their money that day. And the, the, the landowner might be tempted to hold off their wages for the next morning to get them back in for work the next day. But no, they're, they're owed this money at the end of the day when they finish their day's work. And it was a serious thing in the Mosaic Law to pay laborers on time. Jeremiah 22.13 says, Woe to him! who uses his neighbor's services without pay and does not give him his wages. <clears throat> and in the New Testament, James 5, 1-4 to says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you, cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. That's the Lord of hosts, the the Lord of armies, the Lord of angels. And so you hire men to mow your fields, to to do the harvest, and you withhold their money, and their cries go to the Lord. And he hears them, and he will pay the the rich who do not pay their laborers. That's how important it is to God for landowners or those who hire others to pay them on time. As we also look at this parable, it's helpful to know something about timekeeping in Jesus' day. Now, most of us have phones on us. It's linked to some atomic clock, Colorado or elsewhere. You know down to the second what time it is. But in those days, they didn't have, obviously, such accurate timepieces. So they would mark their hours from sunrise to sunset, and so the first hour we might call 6 a.m., the 12th hour, 6 p.m. And then we see in this parable we have the third hour, which is about 9 a.m., then the, the sixth hour at noon, the middle of the day, the ninth at 3 p.m., then the eleventh hour is about 5 p.m., just before dark. Now, you might see a problem with this. If you mark hours from sunrise to sunset, do those happen at the same time every day? Even now, we're, our, our days are getting shorter, aren't they? We, we miss that, and then in the winter time we'll be very sad as it's dark when we get up and it's dark when we come home from work and it's just dark all the time. And it's even worse if you're further north. Because of the way they marked time from sunrise to sunset, their hours were different lengths. They didn't have 60 seconds to a minute, 60 minutes to an hour, and then tw- uh, 12 hours and, and the, the day and 12 hours at night like we do. Those exact seconds, they, they would have, depending on the time of year, their hour could be a little longer or a little shorter. In fact, their their days might be, in our measurements, say anywhere from 10 to 14 hours, depending on the time of year. So that's how the, the hours work in Jesus' time. Not fixed time. Uh, you didn't have precise 
on the nose times like we do today. Now let's get into the parable itself. Uh, verse 20, or verse 1 of chapter 20 rather, starts with the word for. And this links this parable to the end of the chapter 19. And you'll see this phrase repeated like bookends. Verse 30 of chapter 19 says, Many who are first will be last and the last first. Down to verse 16. So the last shall be first and the first last. A little bit different way of phrasing it, but basically the same idea. Sometimes when we look at our Bibles today, we see the chapter divisions, which are not original, of course. The chapter divisions were in the 1200s, I think, something like that. They're not perfect. And so it's useful as you're reading your Bible to not necessarily focus all the time on exact verses and chapters, but to get the flow of what the writer is saying and know that these these chapter divisions, verse divisions, are usually pretty good, but sometimes they're a little artificial and don't always help us understand. So if you're reading a verse or a chapter, sometimes go back a little bit or read a little bit further on just to get the entire context of what you're doing. And we'll connect chapters 19 and 20 a little bit later. So first we have here in this parable, we have a call to work, a call to work. And here's uh, what Jesus has to say from verses uh, 1 through 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, you also go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. So they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing around and said to them, why have you been standing here idle all day long? They said to him, because no one hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. So we have this landowner hiring laborers early in the morning, maybe before the sun rises, so they can get to work right away. doesn't say whether it was at harvest time or whether there was pruning or other kinds of work to do. But somehow the first group wasn't enough for the job. Then verse 4, he goes and he, he finds more at 9 a.m., the third hour. And it says here, it doesn't say he agrees with the, for a denarius with them, but it says, whatever is right, I will give you. And it would be reasonable for these men to suppose that they would only get paid for the portion of the day they worked. So whatever fraction of the day they work is the, the fraction of a denarius that they get. Then we have those who start work at noon and at 3 o'clock and 5 o'clock our time. Maybe they only expect an hour's wage or a few hours' wage, but it's better than nothing. Better than not getting anything at all. You have a little bit maybe for the next day. And it seems kind of strange for the landowner to go out so late for the last batch when you get to this time when the sun's almost down. You can't possibly get much work out of these men. And by the time they arrive from the marketplace and get out into the vineyards, it's almost quitting time probably. But as we'll see shortly, this landowner is gracious and he seems more interested in being generous and hiring and rewarding labor than just getting the labor. He seems to hate seeing men who want to work being unable to get a job. And these men who are standing around waiting at the 11th hour deserve some credit. They've shown wisdom and diligence in keeping themselves available. And there's really not much else they can do except hope for at least a short opportunity to earn money before it's too dark to work. So they're holding out hope that they can get a little bit of work before the sun goes down. So that's, that's the call to the work. Now we see the payment for the work. The payment for the work. Verses 8 to 10. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, 
beginning with the last group to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. When those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now look at verse 8. It says here, pay them their wages beginning with the last group to the first. Sound familiar? That's what Jesus has said about this, the point of this whole lesson. The last shall be first. And it's important in this case for the last to be paid first so those who are hired first can see the generosity to those who are hired last. And then you get to verse 9. Those hired about the eleventh hour came. Each one received a denarius. And you can imagine what it'd be like. You've come to work. You've only worked a little bit. You're thinking, I I might just get a fraction of a denarius. How am I going to feed my family tomorrow? And then you get to this man and he he hands you a denarius. And you think, "I, I have a whole day's pay for a small day's work. I can feed my family tomorrow. And how how joyous it would have been for them to get that money they weren't expecting. And then it's not surprising that those who started work at the beginning of the day might have expected a lot more. Well, if he gets one denarius for uh, for an hour's worth of work, they're doing the math, oh, I get maybe 12 denarii for my work. That would be great. That would be two weeks' work for one day. Well, that's not what's going to happen. Uh, verse 10 mentions... Um, it does not mention the the ones who were hired in the middle of the day, but we assume they also each got a denarius. It says, though, when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each one received the denarius. And that, again, is expected. It's reasonable, because the people who had received, had worked less, would, they would think they would get more as they had worked more for their, for their labor, for, for their, for their pay. <clears throat> But that's not what happens. They also just receive a denarius piece. And so, after they're paid, we hear the grumbling about the payment. Verses 11 and 12. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. And this, uh, I don't usually like to refer to the, the Greek words because I don't, I'm not a Greek expert, but this word grumbled is gonguzo. Ganguzo, if you know the, the term onomatopoeia, that is, it's a word that sounds like what it is. And so even words like murmur or grumble sound like what they are. You're grumbling, you're murmuring. And you can imagine some people saying, ganguzo, ganguzo, ganguzo. It sounds like grumbling. So that's what these men are doing. They're grumbling at the landowner. And we can say it's shocking that these workers would grumble against this man who has been good enough to give them a job for the day. How dare they react like this? But I expect, in truth, I would have had the same reaction. Although, maybe I wouldn't say it out loud. I would be envious of those who had received uh, the same amount for less work. Really, it's unfair, isn't it? They had the harder, sweatier work, these people who were hired first, while the later ones only had to work when the sun was already nearly set. It was a lot cooler outside. How can you make... These men are equal. We deserve more than they do. These workers here, these grumbling workers, sound like the older brother in the story of the prodigal son, don't they? You might remember that the older brother grumbled when his brother returned and was reconciled with his father. This young man says, Father, give me my inheritance. He goes away and he spends it on things that were sinful and wastes it all. And then in Luke 15, 28, 
speaking of the older brother who stayed with his father, he became angry and was not willing to go in, that is to go in to, to celebrate with his family. His father came out and began pleading with him, but he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours, and yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father says to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live, and was lost and has been found. And so this older brother congratulates himself for his work. He says, I have been serving you all these years. I've never neglected the command of yours. And then he rebukes his father for his kindness to the wayward brother. You haven't given me a young goat, but you give this celebration for this son who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. And then he is jealous of the blessing the father has given. So we have those same elements here. Self-congratulation for their hard work, uh, a rebuke of the the father or the landowner in this case, and, and jealousy of the blessing that's come to other people. Well, after the grumbling we, of the, these workers, we hear the, of the goodness of the landowner. The goodness of the landowner, starting verse 13. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go. But I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Now, in verse 13, it says that he responds to one of them. Maybe he's kind of the spokesman of the complainers. But notice how gracious this man is, calling him a friend. At the end of some of the other parables, there are those who are cast into outer darkness or with weeping and gnashing of teeth, or there are some who are tortured until they pay back their debt. There's some really harsh endings to some of these parables. But in this case, there's, there's not such a dire consequence. This isn't a king with his subjects or a master with his slaves. This is just a landowner who has hired these men for the day, and after paying them, has no power over them or obligation to them. They hired them for the day, here's your money, you can go. So instead of a stinging rebuke, this landowner offers a gentle explanation of why their reaction is wrong. There are three responses here. First of all, he says, I'm doing you no wrong, verse 13. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? I'm being completely fair. I'm paying you what we agreed to. And then... Verse 14 says, take what is yours and go, but I wish to give to this last man the same as you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? If I give the same to others, it's my right. I'm obligated by law to pay you what we agreed to, that denarius, that fair wage for your labor, but if I pay more than that, it's my money to use as I wish. And then third, this man rebukes these grumblers because they are wrong to be envious. It says at the end of verse 15, is your eye envious because I am generous? You might have a marginal note that says, is your eye evil? That's what it literally says. Is your eye evil? But we translate it as, is your eye envious? If I use the term evil eye, you think of somebody maybe casting a glance at somebody to to place a curse on them. But in this case, it's looking with malevolence on somebody else, with an evil intent on somebody else, because you want what they have. You're angry at them for what they have, and and you want it for yourself. And the key to understanding the landowner's promise or or, or desire here, the response, is mentioned a couple of times here. Verse 14 says, 
I wish to give to this last man the same as you. And then verse 15, is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? It's the landowner's desires. It's his wishes to give each man the same payment. And he can do what he wishes with his money. And then he says, is your eye envious because I am generous? And literally here, it's kind of obscured by the English, but it says, is your eye evil because I am good? Is your eye evil because I am good? We have this good versus evil here, even in this verse. I am trying to be good to these people, but your eye is evil towards them and towards me. Even though they didn't work as long, those hired at the end of the day still needed a day's pay, and they were at the marketplace ready and willing to work, and going home with a small fraction of a denarius wasn't going to feed their families for the next day. And so these grumbling workers should have rejoiced in the goodness of the landowner and the happiness, the good fortune of the latecomers. But instead, their eye was envious. Their eye was evil. Well, then we finally get to the lesson, verse 16. The lesson here is, so the last shall be first and the first last. And again, we link that with the end of the previous chapter, Matthew 19.30, many who are first will be last and the last first. And so we can ask ourselves now, what's the point of this parable? What does this statement mean? And Jesus doesn't say directly, so there's some speculation involved. There are some parables where he gives detailed explanations of what the, the parable means. Now, some take this parable to refer to the Gentiles entering the kingdom after the Jews. In fact, you can see something like this if you turn to Luke 13. Luke 13, there's a similar kind of statement. Verse 28, Luke 28, starting verse, or Luke 13, verse 28. Uh, in this, in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you, and speaking to the Jews, see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. But they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last, who will be first, and some are first, who will be last. Same phrase, really, in verse 30 here of Luke 13, but in the context of the kingdom of God, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob at the table, rejoicing, celebrating, and then those from all over the world eating with them in this kingdom, while those who belong to the kingdom, these Jews who should have been in the kingdom, were cast out, and there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it's tempting to say, with the same phrase in Luke 13 as the one in Mark, or Matthew 20 and 19, that these are the same in some way. But the thing is, in Mark 20, or Mark, Matthew, Matthew 20, Matthew 20, it's not the same context. Jesus doesn't make the same point. He doesn't mention Jews and Gentiles in the book of Matthew. So I don't think that Matthew 20, when he says the, the last shall be first, the first last, is referring to Jews and Gentiles. So what is he talking about? Well, commentators are generally in agreement that the landowner is God the Father, as we see in other similar parables, that God is likened to a landowner. Or some commentators think that this landowner is Christ himself. But in any case, God is the landowner here. And so I think in this parable, it's best to see the workers as those who are called by God, and the denarius, this payment is God's reward at the end of life. And so we can think of these workers as true believers. There's no talk of taking away their denarius 
and punishing them in outer darkness. So if if this was referring to those who had maybe not come to faith in Christ that God was rejecting, you might think that the, the landowner would take their denarius away, saying, if you can't be thankful for this, I'm going to take it back. These these workers were owed this denarius because they had worked for it. And so these aren't people who have been cast out of the kingdom, but those who are in the kingdom, and yet they have an ungodly response to the goodness of the landowner. Well, what are some things then that we can learn from this parable? First of all, that God doesn't reward according to our demands or our expectations. And Jesus turns the expectations of the disciples and even us upside down sometimes. Look back earlier in Matthew 19, and we see that children are brought to Jesus to be blessed. Verse 13, some children are brought to him so he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked them. The disciples want to send away these children because they're not important enough to bother the Lord. But Jesus says, verse 14, Let the children alone, and do not hinder them from coming to me, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. So children come to Jesus to be blessed. Disciples want to send them away. They're, they're so low status. Don't bother the rabbi with, the, with these, these insignificant people. But Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. And then right afterwards, in Matthew 19, we have the rich young ruler. We meet this young man, and the disciples think of all people, men like him, this man who's, who's wealthy, who's godly. Uh, they must be destined for the kingdom. But Jesus says, verse 23, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. So the supposedly insignificant children leave Jesus blessed. The rich man, held in high esteem by the world, leaves Jesus grieving and remains outside the kingdom. So the kingdom belongs to those like children. It does not belong to people like this rich man. It's exactly the opposite of what the disciples thought. And in this parable, our human justice might demand that the landowner pay more to those who have worked longer. But the parable shows us that in the sphere of grace, God gives sovereignly and graciously just as he sees fit. He does not owe anyone anything. And it comes down to the sovereign grace of God. We're not saved by our works. Those who are saved young and labor long for Christ are not saved any more than the thief on the cross or the militant atheist who repents on his deathbed. Yes, there are differing rewards for service in this life, but the price of admission into heaven is the same. We only enter into heaven on the basis of forgiveness of sins secured by the death of Christ, obtained by faith in the Savior. And one commentator said this, This love is heavenly, rich, and free. It can reward even the shortest service with endless blessing. So, one lesson is that God doesn't reward according to our demands or our expectations. Another lesson is that it's wicked to be envious of those who seem to be more richly rewarded by God. And we know that the disciples themselves were often concerned about rank. We might get a bit of that in Matthew 19, where Peter says to Jesus, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? Even back in Matthew 18, 
Verse 1 says, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? <clears throat> but if you look at the parallels in, in Luke, it says this, An argument started among them as to which one of them might be the greatest. And then Mark 9, 33 and 34, that's also a parallel to Matthew 18 and Luke 9. He began to question them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had been discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. So the disciples wanted to know which of them was the greatest, always jockeying for a position. Who's Jesus' favorite? Who's the most godly? Who's the one who's going to be rewarded the most? Even later in Matthew 20, they're slow to learn this lesson, aren't they? Matthew 20, we have the verse, verse, verse 20 of chapter 20, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus, with her sons bowing down and making a request of him. And he said to her, What do you wish? She said to him, Command that in your kingdom these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and one on your left. Now, let's skip how Jesus responds. But it says, verse 24, Hearing this, the ten became indignant with the two brothers. They thought, Oh, I wish I'd asked first. They're like, I got dibs on Jesus' right and left hand. But Jesus says, verse 26, It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first, there's that word first again, among you shall be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now, I don't suppose that in our day we've outgrown that jockeying for position in the kingdom either. We all, I think, have that temptation to want to be ahead of somebody else. And it's easy to see others' spiritual success and complain to God. I've served you longer. I've been more faithful in ministry. I have more gifts than this person does. How can you elevate them above me? Now, we do have the promise that God blesses us in this life and in the life to come for our faithfulness. Even in this context, Matthew nineteen twenty nine, Jesus says, Everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or farms for my name's sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. So God does bless us for our devotion to him, for our discipleship. But we can't demand that God bless us in exactly the way we prefer. It's all of grace. And this is a good heart check for all of us. How do you react when someone else is blessed above you, ahead of you? If you instead of being grateful for them, have an evil eye towards them, if you're envious of them, ask yourself if your service is really service. If you are seeking your own good above others' good, and if you are seeking the gift more than the giver of all good things. Paul talks about this kind of idea about who's important and who's not in the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's look at verses 14 to 26 probably won't read the whole thing, but listen to what Paul here says. For the body is not one member, but many. Speaking of the body of Christ. If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. So some might say, I'm not important enough, others are better than me, others are more important or more critical. But verse 17 says, If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? 
But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. And that's what's central, isn't it? It's the sovereign wish of the landowner in Matthew 20. It's the sovereign wish of God, the God who has called men and women into his church, into the body of Christ, to place them, each one of them, in the body just as he desires. Paul continues, if they were all one member, where would the body be? But now there are many members, but one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, or again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary, and those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked, so that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. So on the one hand, if you think you're unimportant in God's God's church and, and Christ's body, you're wrong. God has placed you in the place where he's, he's put you for his own sovereign reasons, and you can you can find joy in that place he's put you. On the other hand, if you think yourself too important to associate with the hands or the feet, I'm the eye, I'm the ears, I'm, I'm, I'm the important part. Well, you can't also have contempt on others in the body because God has placed you there for his purposes and you're not better than they are. You are just used differently by God, again, sovereignly. God composes the body in the way that he wants to. <clears throat> he finishes verse 26. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So if one member gets a a denarius for less work, if one gets exalted in some way, we can rejoice with it. If one suffers, we suffer with it. But in all these things, we are together as Christ's body, rejoicing, suffering with each other, and, and being glad in the gifts that God has given to us as his people. So how can we fight this evil eye, this envious eye? Well, again, we can remember it's all of grace. It's all of grace. 1 Corinthians 15.10 says, But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain. But I labored more, even more than all of them, speaking of the other apostles, yet I, not I, but the grace of God with me. So Paul says, By the grace of God I am what I am, it's God's grace in me. I labored, yes, Paul did work. He labored more than all of them. And yet it was not Paul who labored, but the grace of God with me. Now, how many of you have labored in Christ's field more than the Apostle Paul? Any hands? Right, probably not. But Paul, in his mind, did not see himself as the greatest of all saints. He called himself the greatest of all sinners. And when he did accomplish things for God's kingdom... It was not him, but the grace of God within him. So we must also have that same perspective. It's God's grace in us. If we are exalted in God's God's field as, as his worker and God's body, we need to know that it's all because of God's grace. So as we remember, it's all of grace that makes us humble. Makes us humble. Luke 17.10, Jesus says, When you do all the things which are commanded, you say... We are unworthy slaves. We have only done that which we ought to have done. So God has given us a task to do. that We don't pat ourselves on the back and say how wonderful we are, but we say we are unworthy servants, unworthy slaves. We have done what we ought to have done. And that keeps us humble, doesn't it? Because we know it's 
Not us and our greatness doing it, but us doing it because we've been commanded to do it by God. And then we also remember the humility of Christ. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Jesus says, as we saw earlier, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So if you see yourself as too important to serve in the body of Christ, and too important to mingle with the riffraff, well, then you're not acting like Jesus. You are not seeing that Jesus Christ himself did not come to be served, the one who deserves all the service in the universe. The, the All creation should cast itself at Jesus' feet in service to him. And yet Jesus Christ did not come to be served, but did serve and give his life a ransom for many. So we must also, in Christ's field, labor, serve for his sake, not for our own sake. And how can we want ourselves exalted over others for our labors when Jesus himself came as a servant. But one more important point to those of you who don't know Christ this morning. Don't wait till the 11th hour. You don't know when that is. There have been people who say, well, right now, I'm young, I'm, I'm healthy, I'm fit. I want to have some fun, sow my wild oats, whatever it is. When I get older, then I'll go to church, then I'll repent, then I'll follow Christ. Or maybe I'll wait till I'm 50, 60, 70, 80, and it always pushes back year by year. And it's possible your life could be snuffed out at any moment. You don't have a guarantee of three score years and ten, as, as the King James said. You have no guarantee of the next hour. And so, as Hebrews 9.27 says, it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. And if you have not agreed with God, the landowner, for salvation, don't wait another day, another hour, because you never know when your sunset will come, and after that it will be too late. Let's close in prayer. Father, we do thank you for this lesson from the lips of Christ. Thank you for what it teaches us about you and how you value things, what you value. May we have the same value as you do, valuing what is uh, what is good and righteous, and help us to set aside that evil eye, that envious eye, to rejoice with those who rejoice. When they are exalted, may we rejoice with them. May we also, when the time comes, weep with them. In all these things, may we see the goodness of our brothers and sisters as our, our, our joy and not as uh, something to be envied when they are, are exalted and blessed. We pray that you would also work in the hearts of those who may not know you today, who may be waiting and waiting after they hear the gospel many times to believe in Christ when it suits them later. May today be the day of salvation for them. May they repent and believe in Jesus, understanding the, the gravity of the situation, that once the sun sets, it's too late, and they, they cannot enter the kingdom of God. May you save sinners today and encourage those of us who know you, whether we've known you for a long time or a short time. May our days be filled with much labor for you, May we find joy in that labor for Christ's sake. Amen.